Basing big investment decisions and long-term strategies on personal experience and anecdotal evidence is never a great idea. But when it comes to the increasing frequency and severity of natural disasters, the experience so many of us have of scorching heat, chilling cold, floods, and droughts is backed up by a lot of objective data. For example, in 2020, there were 22 separate billion-dollar weather and natural disaster events in the U.S. That number broke the previous record of 16 events in 2017 and 2011. It's also a 30% increase since the year 2000. No other industry faces quite the same challenges and responsibilities in responding to increasingly severe natural disasters as the electric utility industry. Put simply, society depends on the safe and reliable delivery of electricity. It's a challenge that utilities clearly need to face because extreme weather events caused nearly 70% more power outages in the U.S. between 2010 and 2019 than during the previous decade. Understanding how to devise and implement effective storm protection plans will be our topic on this episode of Beyond the Electron, the Energy Cloud podcast series. I'm your host, Chris Warren, and I'm pleased to be joined today by two guests who have unique perspectives on this topic. With us today are Hector Arts, a partner in Guidehouse's Energy, Sustainability, and Infrastructure Group. Hector brings over three decades of experience in the electric utility and energy fields. And his work today is focused on helping utility and other clients plan for the transition to net zero carbon emissions. As part of that work, Hector helps clients create grids resilient to natural disasters and climate change. Also with us today is Barry Anderson, a regional senior vice president for customer delivery for Duke Energy in Florida. Barry is going to give us unique insights from his work developing the utility storm protection plan. Before Barry joined Duke, he worked at California's Pacific Gas and Electric Utility, where he spearheaded efforts to harden the grid against the dangers of wildfires. I'd like to welcome both of you guys. Hector, I'm going to start with you. We're going to get into the details of Duke's storm protection plan in just a minute. But from an industry-wide perspective, so big picture, where do you see resilience against severe weather being a top priority? Is it, you know, tend to be in places where there are regular hurricanes, wildfires, and snowstorms? Or is it something that's really on the priority list of utilities everywhere? Uh, thank you very much. I submit that the risk exists everywhere. It's clear that it's a matter of degree and it's a matter of the type of peril that uh, affects the particular area. Hurricanes affect utilities in the coast, the east coast of the United States, the Gulf, I would say Hawaii and other island territories, while wildfires is a peril that affects utilities uh, in the west. But I would say that there are other perils, uh, extreme temperature, it could be cold or uh, extreme heat, floods or droughts are more geographically dispersed and really have the potential affecting utilities uh, anywhere within our U.S. territory. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just thinking as you were saying that, just pulling from the news recently, I've read about Hawaii, you know, one of the wettest places on the planet now being concerned with wildfires in the forests in Hawaii. So it does seem that places where traditionally there haven't been particular extreme weather concerns, that's changing. And that maybe is one of the things that's characteristic of what's happening is that it's changing and evolving and people have to rethink how they've regarded 
how they protect the grid and and the infrastructure that everybody relies on. So, I mean, (laughs) that kind of gets us to the point of the investments that utilities make in grid resilience. Hector, I want to stick with you on that. You know, what drives those? I think no one likes outages and customers and regulators tend to make a lot of noise when there are extended outages. What are some of the drivers that you see industry-wide around investments in grid resilience? I would agree customers, regulators, even legislators. They are important drivers. I would add, though, that more recently we have a growing trend where investors are focusing on the risk of climate change on utility assets. That is, I would say, new, and it's important to utilities because they are the sources of uh, funding for their operations and their investments. So the results in a significant investment in, in grid resiliency and in order to address the risks of climate change. And utilities are beginning to address the issue of climate change as a driver for resilience investment. It's early days. It will depend on how fast utilities move to decarbonization and how that will indeed impact the need for further resilience. I'll explain by saying that we see a trend towards increased demand on the transmission and distribution grids from the electrification of buildings and vehicles as a means to decarbonize the economy. We also see a need for resilient transmission and distribution systems when it comes to the integration of energy resources. So from that perspective, there is a new sort of stakeholder group that has an interest in utilities to assess the climate change risks and develop programs to improve the resilience of the grid to climate change. Right. Oh, that's an interesting point about investors voicing their concerns and prompting utilities to think a little bit harder about that. Okay, so Barry, let me bring you in. You're going to be able to give us some more specifics to some of these big picture drivers that Hector was just outlining. Can you talk about some of the things that led to Duke's storm protection plan? I mean, most people will understand that Florida has its share of severe hurricanes. There's hurricane season. What are some of the factors that led to the storm protection plan being developed? All right, Chris. Well, a couple of them have been uh, talked about, and that was, uh, I like to think of it in terms of customers, communities, and cost. The expectations of our customers have just really changed over time. Long duration outages after hurricanes are met with frustration from our customers. And our ability to timely communicate accurate information to them is just key. Now, having said that, resiliency of your assets give you a much stronger understanding on how they'll behave under extreme weather conditions. And that's really fundamental to be able to provide that level of communications to customers. When I think about communities, I think about main thoroughfares making sure that if there is an outage to a main thoroughfare, that the restoration time is quick. Bringing up grocery stores and gas stations are just essential to bring that community back up. And the third component, as I mentioned, cost, 
when you consider the assets that are destroyed or damaged that must be rebuilt, you know, it requires a significant amount of outside resources to bring in to do that job. That requires long travel times, lodging, etc. So really an, an investment in a storm protection program just really pays back in, in several ways. Let me just dig in a little bit on something that you mentioned. So you just talked about resilience and its connection to communication. Can you explain that in a little more detail? That, that's intriguing to me. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the distribution system in most utility, not all utilities, I'll just say that, is 100 years in the making. A lot of the assets perhaps have been replaced 30 years ago or 40 years ago. At the end of the day, it's very difficult to understand how your system will behave to any particular hurricane at any particular wind speed. And that creates challenges for the utility in understanding when the lights are going to come back on. And our customers, they want to know, you know, once the hurricane clears, they want to get life back to normal. So in a resiliency program now allows you to have confidence in how much damage it will withstand, how quickly you can restore those assets because they're not disabled in terms of damage. So the outage time is much more minimal and you're able to communicate that ahead of time. So it really is uh, the game changer here. Right. Okay. So let's talk a bit about how you went about. I mean, I know it wasn't just you. I'm sure there were a lot of people involved with formulating the plan. What kind of analysis went into identifying vulnerable assets? And I guess another thing that occurs to me is I'm sure Duke had a sophisticated way to respond to storms in the past. Um, how is this different? Is it about codifying you know, where resources go? identifying vulnerabilities. Is that what gives the power to the plan, if, if you understand what I'm asking? I do. Let, let me start with the, maybe breaking it down into its basic elements. So, you know, the first component is just having an understanding, you know, how, how frequent, you know, what's the probability distribution? I guess that's a mathematical term on how often you're, you're expected to see extreme winds, what those tracks are. And, and those are from, you know, NOAA and, and FEMA models. But what they do is they give you a picture of how your assets will, will perform. So, you know, we've got a, a model that we have a geospatial look at where our assets are. And when you couple the frequency and the wind speeds over our assets, and then you simply look at it as, you know, older poles that are thin, will break at lower wind speeds than thick poles that are new over lower winds. So if you follow that logic, that's really how you arrive at a model that says, my current infrastructure will withstand wind speeds to this amount. Once they're hardened to an extreme wind condition, you have a, a lot more confidence in how they will withstand and how they will behave after a hurricane. Right. Okay. That makes that makes plenty of sense. I mean, you're able to model out real world conditions and then plan accordingly. So let's talk about the elements that have gone into the plan. And and I ask that because, you know, oftentimes I feel like whenever I read about hardening and, you know, resilience, undergrounding is is always mentioned and and I'm sure that's part of the menu for any utility 
but I know it's not the only one. So could you walk through some of the pieces of, of the storm protection plan? And part B of that is also how does that relate to other efforts around grid modernization? Because I imagine the two things can go in tandem. Absolutely. So our plan is basically broken down into to three programs. So one of them we'd call a standards-based program. That's where you're referring to the, the undergrounding. So that's taking overhead circuits and putting them underground. Another standards-based program is, is feeder hardening. And, you know, through the main thoroughfares um, in our service territory, we've got circuits and they're called feeders. They serve roughly two to 3,000 customers. Those feeders are brought up to extreme wind standards, uh, very, very thick poles, large wire, smaller span lengths. So getting yourself a picture of they can, you know, withstand extreme winds to a greater degree. That's really our core program. A second piece is, is targeted. And targeted would be in areas that are flood prone where that you'd want to put in different type of underground equipment in anticipation of the flood plain. Once again, that you could restore. I mean, you can't serve if it goes underground, but of course, the, the time to get customers back in service with the right equipment in place really helps that. And then the third program approach is we call it enabling, and that would be vegetation management primarily. You know, once you harden your system, either on the overhead side, if you put it underground, obviously you, you reduce the vegetation risk of a tree blowing in your line, but at the same time, the vegetation cycle that you're on, and most for like a feeder, for example, we have a three-year vegetation cycle, which, you know, you trim the lines back for three years of growth. And what that does is when you do get extreme winds and, you know, branches and debris and things like that fly on your on your circuits, you you, you minimize the amount of debris from the trees, and that keeps your circuit healthy. Right. Okay, great. Well, Hector, I want to bring you back in. We've learned here a little bit about Duke's approach. I wonder in your, you know, uh, survey of utilities, how, how similar or different is what they're doing um, to, to other examples you've seen? And, and is there a common set of tools and approaches utilities can use to, you know, improve resilience? I would say that Duke's approach is generally similar to the approach other utilities employ. I would say that uh, Duke's approach uh, focuses on the development of a, a framework that uh, allow them to identify the risk to their transmission and distribution assets and quantify the, the benefit of the different hardening measures. This tool this analytical framework, I think, was developed with the idea that it would be consistently utilized to support the evolution of the SPP program over time because the program is meant to evolve and ideally incorporate the lessons learned and the results that are found if a storm were to hit Duke's Energy Florida's territory in the coming years. I think what is somewhat unique to Duke is that in developing this framework, they, they were able to identify the value and the cost of the different measures and develop a benefit analysis that was used to identify the best solutions and then prioritize the implementation of those solutions. And that framework 
was used to communicate the value of the programs to uh, regulators and customers and other stakeholders. And I think that that is key in, in the process of developing infrastructure resilience programs, because you need to bring in your stakeholders, uh, make them part of the process, and explain to them the value of the investments that, that you're doing. Right. I asked Barry this, but I want to get you to chime in as well, Hector, about the idea of grid modernization and improved resilience. What do you see, I mean, in terms of other utilities that are pursuing improved resilience, protection against extreme weather, and simultaneously modernizing the grid? I mean, a lot of it does seem to go hand in hand. What's your view of those two things and whether they interlap or how utilities are pursuing it? Absolutely. They're very much related. Resiliency impacts the reliability of the grid and it benefits from the modernization of the grid. And it depends on, you know, having the sensors, having the equipment, uh, modern equipment in the grid to understand the situation of the grid. It's, It's not just investing in undergrounding or investing in poles with more strength. It's also investing in technology that will enable the restoration processes to be more effective, efficient, and that can reduce costs. It's also investing in the processes themselves and in the organization. So it's it's the investment in technology, tools, or processes, and the organization itself, how you're uh, trained and ready to respond to mitigate the you know, impact of a natural disaster. There is no way to build a grid that will stand all natural disasters and not fail, uh, being prepared to respond quickly effectively know where the the issues are and uh, reduce the time that customers are affected is is part of the resilience. Right. Having that visibility that sensors and, and other technologies can provide about where there might be an outage, you know, how you need to deploy resources to bring customers back online has got to be an important part of any storm protection and response plan. And there's new capabilities to do that. Yeah. And Barry mentioned something that is, uh, I think, worth repeating. And that is to the extent that a utility is able to develop analytic tools and predictive models to prepare for the natural disasters such as storms. And in the case of hurricanes, you have a little bit of a warning so you can uh, use those uh, predictive tools to position your your organization and summon resources and get ready for it it's more than just like i said uh, poles and wires it's technologies models it's uh, intelligent use of data chris i was going to add to that another aspect of this is is you know your system is more resilient and hardened you, know, you can take advantage of the automation you have on the grid you know it's cases when you have you know a storm approaching it once again if you can have confidence that your lines based on your vegetation practices the the age of your lines and so forth you can take advantage of switching around circuits based on temporary faults i know that's a little technical but 
and the hard and the more hardened your system is allows you to, to also do that with confidence that the technology you have, the fault sensing capability, and really these switches are very smart where that, you know, they operate on their own and, and they can take an outage and reduce it by 75% in a matter of a minute. So as a storm hardening ties with that automation, it's just key in keeping as many customers on uh, through these type of events. Well, Barry, can you talk a bit about some lessons learned so far in the implementation of the storm protection plan? You know, Hector brought up what I think is a really important point around communicating the value of these efforts to all stakeholders. And I think there's really something important to that. I don't want to put words in your mouth about lessons learned, but that struck me as something really important because these are, you know, events that have the potential to impact people in deeply personal ways and understanding what a, you know, utility is planning and doing to prepare for and respond to inevitable events seems really wise and impactful. That's a big lead up to <laughs> to guide you. And I don't know if that's your experience, but tell us what it is. Oh, well, yeah, that's good, good, good insight there, Chris. I, I kind of uh, see it as, you know, being, being heavily engaged, you know, with the rulemaking process up front as the regulators, uh, you know, they understand the impacts to the utilities and, you know, ultimately customers in regards to extreme winds and hurt from hurricanes and so forth. So when you're involved early in the process with them, it sets the stage for some of the things that, that Hector mentioned, and that is having, you know, a good cost benefit analysis. You know, the, these programs, you know, require a lot of capital funding and they tend to be challenged that way from a cost benefit analysis. So making sure that your modeling is tight, you're using good industry practices for your maintenance programs and so forth. And when you tie those together and, and bring them forward, you, you bring those stakeholders along with you. Also, another lesson learned is work with your utilities that are with, within your state as well. Um, you know, they're under the same program and they have to do the same filings and and just making sure that you know you have some insight in, into their best practices here can go a long way too third uh, always good to bring along uh, stakeholders when you respond quickly uh, to the you know the questions they may have and interrogatories and so forth and and I would say another lessons learned is really having a strong team you know cross functionally you know, tie in your legal team, your rates and regulatory team, your engineering team. You know, those are all good things that kind of galvanize the program, so to speak, and, you know, help you get the approvals from the regulatory bodies. So that's that side of it. The other side I want to mention, Chris, was just the, the other lessons learned are things like your design standard changes. When you've been using standards that have been similar for 30 to 40 years, when you go to make a change, to have a more resilient system, you know, you need time, you need time to socialize those things with your standards team and your engineers and the field resources that are going to be doing the building. And, and the other piece is it, it adds a lot of work. 
And um, so you got to have good contracting strategies to, you know, to add resources and so forth in order to get the work done efficiently and effectively to deliver the commitments that you've made with the uh, regulators. Yeah, the implementation really means something. It's not just a, <laughs> it's not just a throwaway term. It has real, uh, real consequences. Tell me what's next in terms of resilience. I have to imagine that it's a constantly evolving process that extends beyond the program even just you know gauging where those vulnerabilities are and you know constant monitoring and adaptation what's kind of next for you well for us so we filed a 10-year roadmap uh, that was the you know the requirement uh, so we built out a 10-year plan uh, and then we'll also file along with that a, a three-year detailed plan, what circuits that we're going to underground, what circuits we're going to harden, where we're going to do the flood mitigation that I mentioned. So those are more detailed plans. And it, and it really is, it's a good way to follow our progress, you know, make sure our costs are in line with what our commitments are and, you know, show the regulators we're being cost effective here. But our program is, is going to be 20 years, maybe even 30 years in some areas. We have a very large system and it was built over many, many years. So, you know, that's kind of the next phase. After we get through these 10 years, we'll file more, but it's really a continual type of filing. What we plan to learn is, you know, after every uh, event we have, we'll take a look at those assets that I mentioned that we have geospatially, we have the technology where that we overlay the wind speeds on our assets. You know, we know the last time we trimmed trees on that circuit. So, you know, if you just left a circuit yesterday, chances are you're not going to have as many vegetation outages, for example, as one that you trimmed two and a half years ago. Um, so what we'll do is we'll validate our models against our new assets that we have in place and the wind speeds, and then we'll learn from there. And, and you know, if you have to make some adjustments in your pole spacing or your pole thickness or your vegetation cycles, you know, those are the things that we'll draw off of as uh, we move forward. Great. Okay. So we're going to wrap up here with a question for both of you. And Hector, I'll have you go first. Based on what you've observed, any best practices and industry successes that you've seen, what kind of advice do you have for, for utilities that are trying to evaluate the investments they're considering in resilience? I believe that uh, the lessons that Duke Energy Florida and Barry have learned are, uh, in essence, generates the answer to your question. The only one that I would add is that as a final step is to continuously measure progress, progress in the deployment of your uh, investments, resiliency investments, and to the extent that you are impacted by an event, to make sure that you also measure the results and report to your stakeholder group what benefits may have uh, derived from the investments that uh, you've made. I think it's terribly important to continue to engage with regulators, customers, and, and other uh, stakeholders in, in the process of adding resilience to the, the assets, the utility assets. Other than that, it's, you know, the framework and the models that you use to uh, identify the risk and uh, determine the mitigation strategies and all of that will, will continue to evolve and improve as more and more experience and data 
it's uh, added to it. I think that applied the lessons that Duke have learned and uh, you have the makings of an excellent program. Excellent. Well, Barry, I'll give you the last word here. Any advice you would give to let's say, uh, someone who's not uh, as far along as you and is closer to the beginning of this journey. All right, Chris. Well, first, I'd just say resiliency works. You know, it's an investment in your infrastructure, but it will certainly pay dividends to regulators, customers, communities that I mentioned, but really take a a hard look. And, And Hector mentioned it, you know, understand your asset base, Look at your previous um, outage history from other severe weather events that you've had and, you know, continue to um, learn from each new storm you get and stay updated on, on the models that are out there from NOAA and FEMA and not add a lot of personal judgment on what may or may not happen. You know, stick to the models that, that the professionals develop. And the cost-benefit analysis is really important. So you can, as Hector mentioned, continually look back, make sure that uh, you've made the, the best decision you had at the time, but then also, you know, adjust, you know, adjust for what the data may point you along. And, and it's just a, it's a long journey and it, it's going to take time to get through your system, but as you experience a tropical storm headed your way or a hurricane, and I can speak for experience, the more hardened and resilient and automated your system is, the better off you're going to be in terms of communicating to customers uh, the expectations uh, after the event. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Hector and Barry for a great conversation. And I want to wrap up by underlining what Barry and Hector just talked about. Resilient strategies are obviously going to vary from utility to utility, but it's also clear that the best resilient strategies combine a clear view of the impact of extreme weather in the past and a willingness to continuously review and analyze what's working and what isn't. The ability to do both of those things and evolve and change course when necessary is going to be really important going forward. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you back here next time on the next episode of Beyond the Electron. Goodbye.